the words of that song, every word, particularly the chorus, is the definition of what it means to believe in you, to have experienced regeneration, that we look and see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, the one who has atoned for our sin, the one who, having been made to feel the reality of our guilt, provided the solution for our guilt by bearing it on, in your own person on the cross and defeating death and rising from the dead and ascending back to the Father so that we might have life. And so we thank you for sending your spirit. We thank you for accomplishing all that relates to our redemption. And we thank you for the hope that we have that you are returning for your own and that one day we will be with you. We'll keep this and Holy Spirit, to keep this before our eyes always, that we could live wisely, circumspectly, humbly, sincerely, and truthfully until that great day that we're with you. And we pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. Uh, now, last week I waited until the very end to take the jacket off, but that might come off a little bit sooner. So anybody who's offended by propriety, uh, just know it's hot. And, uh, you know, somebody shared with me this week that when they were a kid, you know, they didn't have air conditioner and they had to wear their full suit, you know, the whole time as, and they were going, but... Um, we're just not in there anymore, that day anymore, so we might change things up a little bit this morning. So anyway, well, we're coming back to Revelation chapter 3 and the message of Christ, the risen Christ, to the church at Sardis, the church at Sardis. And it is a significant message. It is a devastating message to this church. It is a message, as we've noted, is very applicable to much of what we see, not only throughout the history of the church, but particularly the church also in our day. In other words, that uh, people can have a name that they are alive, but they are dead. And that includes not merely a body of believers, but that also can include the individual believers in it. Uh, we see many of these warnings through Scripture, and I noted last week that is one of the great themes that runs through Scripture, those who have an external appearance of life, but in fact have no reality of it within their soul, have no reality of it within their own person. They are still, in the words of Jesus, dead in their trespasses and sin. And now we've noticed, noted as we've uh, come to this passage, first, the context of the church that this church is a, has a history, not only of military significance, but in that military significance, a history that gave it a particular identity in that in its uh, confidence and its strength, it paid no attention to its vulnerabilities and it was twice defeated in her history. And so that was a, a part of the lure even of that day. Uh, Sardis became a byword for those who were taken by surprise, who were defeated by paying, not paying attention uh, to their weaknesses. And we noted the character of Christ as he spoke to this church that was affluent, that was at peace, and he addresses them as one who is equal to God, possessing the spirits of God, and who is sovereign over the messengers to the church, who is sovereign over the church. And we noted before then his great message to them was one of condemnation, a great reversal. They had a name that they were alive, but they were in fact dead. And we come this morning to then his call to this body of believers, his call to repentance. So let's begin, however, by reading the passage and then we'll look at it more closely. So Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. To the angel of the church in Sardis write... He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds, 
that you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen the things which remain, which are about to die, for I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. So remember what you have received and heard and keep it and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so is the message to Sardis, a church that has very little commendation, but not, it's completely absent of some encouragement by the risen Christ, but by and large is a church that receives his rebuke, who receives only from him or primarily from him the designation that they are, in fact, not truly his. They confess his name, but they don't belong to him. And now we noted that again. And that devastating indictment that he says, you have a name that you are alive. Other people look at this church, other Christians presumably look at this church and they say that is a church to be followed, that is a church who demonstrates the life of Christ in them, that is a church who is active, they are affluent and materially, they are at peace, Uh, they are not experiencing some of the same hostilities against them as other churches were, even churches addressed by Christ. They seem to be very active outwardly in the things that they do as a church and therefore it is presumably that they do in the name of Christ and so they were no doubt finding some confidence in that some assurance of their own position with Christ because of that commendation by others but they do not receive commendation from Christ he in fact reveals their true condition and he says but you are dead that you are dead And the meaning of dead there is the full sense of the meaning that we have in the rest of the New Testament that speaks of spiritual death, that speaks of an absence of untrue knowledge of God, an absence of the ability to respond to God, an ignorance of God, of emptiness and a vanity and a futility within their own soul, though they name the name of God. And of course, it means as well, ultimately and most significantly, that they are a church who is professing salvation in Christ, but is under the wrath of God and will experience instead the judgment of Christ and what a horrible, horrible condition to be in. To expect to receive, be received by Christ with open arms only to be the objects of his wrath and his scorn in that day unless there is repentance. And yet in the midst of that, there is some hope. There is some hope. And the hope is this. The hope is found in the fact that though they are genuinely marked by the character of spiritual death, by empty and vain profession with the Lord, there there is yet some possibility of salvation, of turning back to the Lord. There is some possibility of repentance. And so he says, right after his indictment, you are dead in verse 2, wake up and strengthen the things which remain, that remain which were about to die, for I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. And indeed, he will say later in verse 4, four that we'll get to this next week, that there are some who have not soiled their garments. They have not soiled their garments. 
And so there is the possibility of life, but to lay hold of this life, there is the need, as there is in every case, of repentance, of response to the Christ who is speaking to them. And so let's note first the divine commands to which he gives and lays upon this body of believers and all of us who find ourselves in this condition. There are essentially five commands, and there's five commands, there's five imperatives in this section that are really clustered into two different groups, two different groups. So we'll look at it in that way, two different groups that contain these five different commands. And the first group, again, we just read it, is found in verse 2. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain. So wake up and strengthen. Both of those are commands. Both of those are commands. The term can be translated here where he says, wake up, be watchful. Be watchful, be aware, come out of your slumber. It's the same term that Jesus used with his disciples. You'll remember when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane and, and he brought Peter, James, and John with him and he said, stay here and pray. And he went and prayed. He came back three times. They were asleep. And what did he tell them? He, he told them to be watchful, to be on guard, to be aware, to be alert. And that's the same term here. It could also have the idea of constant readiness. It could even have the idea of be alive, make yourself alive. But here, the sense is this, is that he's telling them to wake up, to wake up. Come out of this slumber that you're in. Come out of this condition where you are blind to the true nature of your situation. And again, this would have really connected to them just in terms of even their own cultural awareness, their own self-consciousness, again, of the history of the city that they lived in. Twice within her history, as I already mentioned, the city was overtaken because if you remember that picture of the cliff, there was a way up, but they thought nobody's going to go up there, and so they didn't really guard it. And two times in her history, they were overcome and overtaken by an invading army because they were not watchful. They were not careful. They did not pay attention to the ways in which they could fall. They thought it would not happen to them. They had a strong sense of assurance. They had a strong sense of their own security in their own position. And so it would have resonated at least even at that level to say, be aware, you are not as secure as you seem. And these were in a similar danger of resting on a wrong foundation for assurance. And so he tells them to wake up. But what is he calling for in that? Well, again, as I already noted, wake up from a spiritual stupor. Wake up from the sense of self-satisfaction and to realize their situation. They were... On the other side, needing to wake up because they were, by the estimation of Christ, asleep. They were asleep. They were unaware. And essentially, they were li living carelessly on a sense of spiritual safety and in no doubt even a sense of self-importance before God. One said that the readers had become lethargic about the radical demands of their faith in the midst of a pagan culture. They had become lethargic about the radical demands of their faith. Boy, that sounds like that could be levied against many today, doesn't it? Many who name the name of Christ. Many who are, as we noted before, saved to Christ as the one who is the great fixer of their life, not the savior of their sin. Christ who is calling people in many context is in the way that they present Christ anyway is calling Christ or people to have a good time to have security in life 
to have abundance and overflowing joy all of the time because of the ways that he will bless you. Christ is the great helper in life to make you be all that you can be and so on and so forth, but not a savior from sin. And he says, wake up, wake up. Realize that that is not the gospel, and yet that defines many. I grew up, actually, in the, in the South, and I wasn't saved until later, oddly enough, in the, it's called the land of fruit and nuts in Los Angeles, uh, is where I actually came to know Christ. Uh, but growing up in the Bible Belt, and, and much of my family is still in that uh, context, and there is what is commonly known as cultural Christianity. There's a, kind of, there's a kind of veneer of Christianity that doesn't always seem to reach to the heart to produce true, true repentance and the evidence of life. And there's a lot of confusion that can exist in that kind of environment. As a matter of fact, just a plug for uh, a book I read recently on that. It's called The Unsaved Christian. It's a simple little book. It's in the... Uh, it's in the bookstore, and it's called Confronting Cultural Christianity with the Gospel. There's another little booklet that I ordered that you might want to pick up. It's called Alive or Dead by J.C. Ryle, and it's the hard truths that need to be presented to Christians about what is the evidence of life and death. I'd recommend those to you. Those would have been good books for the church at Sardis to read and for many churches today to understand what is the gospel. So he's telling them to wake up, but what does it mean to wake up? Well, he answers that in the next statement. He says, wake up, be aware of your situation, consider that you are asleep, consider that you are in a very dangerous predicament, wake up, and how would we do that? By strengthening the things that remain. By strengthening the things that remain which are about to die. Well, what are these things that remain? What are these things that are about to die? Well, there's two ways to understand this. The, 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 the word translated or the phrase there translated, the things, could be referring to people or it could be referring to their works. And so, which is it? Well, it's a difficult decision. But I would suggest here, as with others who see it this way as well, that the command does not separate the people from the works. I mean, there's, it could be either way. You could specify either one and argue for it. But in reality, those two things are connected. Notice what he says here. He says, strengthen, I have not found your works complete. In other words, the works belong to them. What needs to be strengthened, if the works are to be strengthened, then it's the people who are going to do them. If the people are strengthened, then they need to be strengthened in a way that their works evidence the true salvation. So it really includes all of that. It might be more generalized and say this, strengthen the things that remain. In other words, strengthen anything that's true, any spark of the reality of life that may exist among you and come all the way to full obedience to Christ. Come all the way to full repentance. Come all the way to a full faith in Christ that demonstrates the reality of your connection to him, your participation in his salvation. That's the idea. So it really encompasses the whole picture of the people and the works that they do, the works and the people committing them. Whatever remains among you, whatever is there that has hope, whatever there is there that, can, that has something sincere and true about it that can be brought to a true knowledge of Christ, strengthen it, pay attention to it, give heed to it. Now what does he say is wrong with them? What are they exactly to strengthen? Well, again, he says... Your works, he says, I have not found to be complete or to be fulfilled uh, before my God or in the presence of my God. In the words of Daniel, if you'll remember to Belshazzar in Daniel chapter 5, 
where Daniel said to that ruler, you have been weighed in the scales and found deficient. So that's what Christ is saying to this church, essentially. Their works are weighed in the scale of God's omniscience, of his righteousness, and they are found wanting of spiritual reality. That's, that's the thing to consider. And it is Christ who knows. Remember the description of himself in verse 23 of chapter 2. He says, I will kill her children with pestilence. All the churches will know what? That I am he who searches the minds and the hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. God sees, not as man sees, as we've noted before, he sees the heart. He sees the reality of the situation. He sees things the way they really are. And he says when this is evaluated, he says the works are not complete in the presence of my God or before my God. Both good translations. Well, what does he mean by that? I just want to pull over. What does he mean before my God? Uh, just let's take notice of that. We'll say, Why does the risen Christ say, my God, if he himself is God, if he is equal to God in his glory, if he is equal to God in his divine nature, why is he saying, my God? Why does he seem to make a distinction? What is the point of his saying that here? Well, he's saying this, first of all, in his exalted state, bearing the full expression of his deity in glorified humanity. Remember, he's speaking as the exalted God-man. The same God-man who at the end of the completion of it will offer up the kingdom back to the Father in 1 Corinthians 15, 28. He's speaking as the God-man. He's speaking as the exalted man, Christ Jesus. And when he says, my God, that's not a statement of being lesser. Actually, it is a statement of his equality as it's manifest through his humanity. Let me give you just a couple of examples. And it's important to note this, and I'll tell you in just a sec why that's important and what he's actually saying. Notice here, he does not say our God, but he says my God. In other words, the one with whom I share a unique relationship. It's very similar to what Jesus said to the ladies at the, in John 20, 31, where he says, I go to my father. Father and your Father, my God and your God. In other words, you are brought to participate in the relationship that I have by nature with God. You are brought to share into that. The relationship that I have with him eternally through my humanity, expressed through my incarnation, now you share in that with me. He's saying, so he makes a distinction in saying what you share is indeed glorious, it's what I share, but what you share is what I bring you into, what is already my own. Do you see that distinction? Does that make sense? He says, my God and your God, it's very similar to what he said in his prayer to the Father, I want to rejoice and share in the glory which I had with you before the world was. An unadulterated sense of the enjoyment and the fullness and the pleasure of this relationship. But now with this added, uh, added reality, and that is the way that it's expressed through the taking on of humanity and his exalted glory. Now the main idea, why does he say this though? Why does he say in the presence of my God? What is the point? The point is this. Is Christ is saying this, that his judgment and the Father's judgment are one. 
The Father's assessment of you is my assessment of you. They are one. It's similar to the idea, though he has a different point he's making in John chapter 10, I think verse 31, where he says, I and the Father are one. Nobody can snatch them out of my hand. Why? We are one. We share equally in this purpose of saving and redeeming, unique to our own roles as person within the Godhead. The Father sent, but I accomplished, and together we hold as one, as the one glorious triune God, fulfilling the purpose. And that's the idea here, is that he says, my God, in other words, my judgment is God's judgment. In fact, in John 5, 22, 23, you'll remember that all judgment has been given to the Son. The Father judges no one. All judgment has been given to the Son. Why? That all may honor the Son even as they honor the Father. And here is one expression of that. And so that's what he's saying. He's saying, this is the judgment of God on you. This is a divine judgment, divine indictment. And the indictment is this, that your works are not complete. Your, the judgment is that they are insufficient. Now, what does he mean by that? What does he mean by that? That they're insufficient, that they're not complete, that they're not fulfilled, you could say. The term here, as it's being used, is not referring to quantity of works. He's not saying do more. You need to be more active. You need to add more programs onto your little local church ministry there. You need to reach out to more poor. You need to do more things. That's not what he's saying. He's saying the quality of your works is insufficient. The source out of which they're coming is not right. It doesn't demonstrate the reality of spiritual life. He's not saying that you need to do more, but he's saying your works are not flowing from the right heart. They don't have the right goal. They're not an example of faith working through love for Christ and others. Whatever they are, they're not that. Well, then what way were they incomplete? And what way were they incomplete? Because we need to know so we can evaluate our own life. In what way were these works incomplete? In what way did they not have the quality of divine life and the reality of the presence of the Spirit, the indwelling ministry of the Spirit? What way did they not come out of a regenerate heart? How, how were they incomplete? What was the problem with them? Well, interestingly, he leaves that undefined. He leaves it undefined. However, as we begin to kind of get down deeper into this, we would want to acknowledge something that's very important to acknowledge. There's no, there's no sense here in which these works are not good for other people, that they're not good for other people, not good for their culture, not good for their city, not good for their neighbors in some way. In other words, there's no indication here they're not good in a human sense. In fact, they had to be, right? Because otherwise, other churches wouldn't be looking at them and saying that demonstrates the life of Christ. So there has to be something good. There has to be something admirable. There has to be something that can be appreciated in the things that they're doing. They're not bad works. They're not doing harm to their neighbor. They're not out attacking. They're not doing those kind of things. So whatever these works are, they are works that have some sense of human goodness to them. Well, that gets confusing, doesn't it? How then can you know? We have lots of church organizations and churches and religious organizations that do a ton of good things, that build hospitals, that go and feed the poor, that minister to other people. And yet, by the indictment here, we'd have to say that Christ would say to some of them, you're dead. You don't have life. You have things that are helpful, and you have things that are good at some level, 
you might try to be a moral person, but you don't have life. And just as a comment here, morality and spiritual life and sanctification are not the same thing. They're not the same thing. And Scripture notes this in a variety of ways. Let me just mention to you a few to consider how this can work out. Remember when Jesus said to the crowds in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, and he's talking about prayer, and he's talking about we seek, we ask, we find, we, or we knock, and, and we'll receive. And he says this, he gives an illustration comparing, and, he, and the idea of this is to show the, the generosity of God, the generosity of God's heart. But he says this, he says to these crowds, and this, remember, these are religious crowds. These are not irreligious. These aren't professing atheists. These are the covenant people of God. These are the ones, if anyone among all of the earth, were the ones who truly worshiped the true God. And he says this in Matthew 7, 11, If you, can you finish it? Being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. Well, just notice that contrast. He says you're evil. You are an evil person. You are of your nature corrupt and evil, and yet you do good. You give good gifts to your children. You can take the most rank unbeliever who can do good to their children and to love their family. And he acknowledges that. You can have, he says, you being evil know how to give gifts to your children. What about the Pharisee in Luke 18? He lived a moral and a religious life. He says, I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. Jesus says that, that is true. He does seek to live honestly. He does seek to live fairly and justly. He does give himself to religious causes and to causes that seem to promote and fit with the purposes of God in this world. He does do all of those things. But Jesus says he did not go home justified. He went home under condemnation. Or what about the rich young ruler who had externally a sincere conformity to the moral law of God and when he said that he wanted eternal life and Jesus gave him a list of the commands of Moses, even the easier ones, and what did he say to this young man, this eager young man? He said, all these things I have kept from my youth. All of these things I have kept from my youth. He was astounding. He was exemplary in his moral conformity to the law of God externally. And Jesus does not rebuke him for hypocrisy there. Misunderstanding, but not hypocrisy. And that's important. As a matter of fact, I think it was in Luke, in the recount of the story, where it says that Jesus looked at him, do you remember? And it says he loved him. He loved him. He looked at this young man with a tenderness. He saw within him a sincerity in asking the question and coming to Jesus, humbling himself even before others. And yet, when the true realities of the gospel were presented to him, what did he do? He walked away. He walked away sad. And the disciples were amazed and they said, who then can be saved? And Jesus said, with men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. The point I would really just want to highlight here is to say, it's possible to be religious, it's possible to be committed, it's possible to be sincere, it's possible to be moral, it's possible to do a lot of good things, to be just, equitable, a good parent, a loving father, mother, etc., and to have this sentence of Christ that you are dead, that those works, as good as they might be for other people, are incomplete in the presence of my God that's what he's saying 
The Pharisee went home unjustified. The rich young ruler, as far as we know, unjustified. The crowds, unless they responded, in their sin. So we have to own this fact, that spiritually dead people can do many good things that are helpful to others, be good to their families, be sincere in morality, and be sincere in religious works in the name of God and even Christ. That's possible. That's what he's talking about. Your works aren't complete. They're not complete. What does they lack? They lack the right understanding of God's holiness, their own sin, Christ's atonement, we said, we sang it in the song, right? We live because of Christ's atonement. We understand his death on my behalf. It's as the prophet said to Israel, all their deeds are like filthy rags. Well, here's then the question then. That's the problem. How do we know the difference? How do we know the difference? How can we know the works done in the name of Christ, whether they're incomplete and whether they will be counted by Christ as evidence of death rather than life? Well, let me just suggest to you a few ways. And I'm going to have to just really just give you the list. Let me suggest to you a few ways. One is, we've already noted, but they can be works that are done that are devoid of faith and grace. They can be void of a true saving knowledge of the covenant, the covenant of grace. That's not the theological category, the covenant of grace, but the covenant that is given by grace. Listen to the way he says this in a few places. And he says in Hebrews 6.1, he says, Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from what? Dead works and of faith toward God. Of instruction about washing and laying on of hands. In other words, he's identifying everything that marked your life before as dead works. And the contrast of that is, is to do works that are truly evidence of faith. Evidence of faith in God. He says in Hebrews chapter 9, 14, the same thing, that there are dead works. He says, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Works that could never account to your relationship with God, never be to your credit. So one, they can be devoid of faith in God's grace. Second, they can be done and devoid of a sincere love to God and others. We're familiar with this passage, 1 Corinthians 13. Again, I'm just going to run through these. He says, if I speak with tongues and of men but do not have love, I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and knowledge, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give my possessions to feed the poor, if I surrender my body to be burned but do, have, do not have love, it profits me nothing. In other words, it's great to make, it's possible to make great claims of faith, make personal sacrifice, and claim exceptional giftedness and usefulness to God. And he says, but it can come from a heart who is empty of love and empty of divine reality, and it has no profit. No profit. So one, they can be a lot of good and sacrificial things that are void of sincere love. They can be exuberant, but from an unrighteous heart and life. We're familiar again with this warning at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. He says this, 
Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who work, practice lawlessness. And so they were acting in the name of Christ. They were doing supposedly extraordinary things for Christ. And yet, he says, you're actually practicing not the expression of faith, but lawlessness. Your heart was unconverted. There was no sincere sense of holiness and obedience to God. They can be done out of pride. Well, again, we're familiar. Let's stay in the sermon. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father in heaven. There can be great, ostentatious, outward views or acts of spirituality that are done within the internal motive of the person for no other reason or for the ultimate reason to be noticed by them and to be thought spiritual, to be thought a Christian, to be thought godly, to be thought righteous. And Christ says, well, you know what? I'll tell you what, if that's your motive, you got it. People will adore you. They will put your name on plaques, the sides of buildings. They'll do great things. You will receive honor. You can have it. But guess what? You have no reward from God, and you will be found wanting. Your works will be weighed in the balance, and they will be found empty. They will be found incomplete before my God. And so that's another way. They can be done out of self-righteousness. They can be done out of self-righteousness. In other words, where all of these works are done, and inwardly in the heart, regardless of what the mouth professes, inwardly in the heart, one can think this. God will accept me because of what I'm doing. God would never condemn me because I'm simply too good of a person. Why would he condemn somebody like me? Now, that can be either a stated, explicit theological position, such as maybe in Roman Catholicism or first century Judaism in some sense, or it can just be the inner thought that someone has where they give lip service to the gospel, but inwardly what they're resting on is their own works, their own goodness before God. So listen to the way that he states it in Romans 10, or actually first in Romans 9, he says this, Why did Israel not receive salvation? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works, and they stumbled over the stumbling stone. Listen to what he says it in chapter 10, verse 3. Not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. In other words, he's the fulfillment of the righteousness of God and is embodied in the law that he requires of man and he's the only one in whom we can actually be in possession of that righteousness in Christ. Not by works, not by things we do. And so somebody can have a lot of religious externals but be trusting inwardly in their own works and their own goodness. Or somebody can even come in the name of religion and have no other end other than to manipulate for their own advantage. This would fit a lot of the health, wealth, and prosperity teachers. But it can happen in much more subtle ways as well. It doesn't have to be as ostentatious as that. But listen to what Paul says to these teachers. He says, For such men are false apostles, 
deceitful workers disguising themselves as apostle of Christ. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it's not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as what? What do they disguise themselves as? Evil workers? Do they disguise themselves as untrustworthy, hypocritical people who are coming in to manipulate the church? No, that wouldn't be very effective. Listen to what he says. They disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. In other words, the church at Corinth, in this case, was in some measure swayed, some measure leaning towards and influenced by these false teachers because they came in the name of Christ They presented themselves as servants of righteousness. They claimed their own godliness and their own sincerity, and yet their deeds were ultimately manipulative and for their own advantage and had nothing to do with the gospel. In fact, Paul calls them workers of Satan. So there's a variety of ways. So when he says here, he doesn't really define it, so we don't know exactly what he meant in that, but he doesn't need to define it more exactly because there's a variety of ways that they could have been guilty of that censure and that charge by Christ. You're doing works, your works are noticed by others, but your works are not complete. Now there is a message in there of condemnation, but also of hope because he's saying you can complete them. Well, then what makes a work complete? What makes a work complete? Well, again, let me just give you a few passages and then I'll summarize it. How about 1 Thessalonians 1.3? He says this, We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith, your labor of love, your steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God, of our God and Father. In other words, your work is truly out of faith in Christ. It's out of a true understanding of the gospel, a true understanding of redemption, a true understanding of of who God is and how we are to serve him in this world. It's marked by a true sense of love for him and others. So they're done out of faith in Christ. They're done out of love for Christ. Jesus says this, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. In other words, whatever works are done, they are ultimately this, a fruit of obedience to Christ out of love. They're not for being noticed by others. They're not for a sense of self-righteousness and goodness. They are not for any other reason other than to be obedient to Christ. That's ultimately the evidence of faith at the end of the day is that we work and we want to obey him out of faith and love for him. They are done for the glory of God in Christ. They are done for the glory of God in Christ. 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Do all to the glory of God. Do all to the glory of God in Christ. It means that when you act and it's a work that's acceptable and complete, it's done out of faith in the gospel, It's done out of a sincere love for Christ, out of who he is and what he's done for us in redemption. It's done with the ultimate end for the glory of God in Christ because of who he is and what he's done. And we had true, if it's a true work, then if this were added to the end of it to say that work that you did, if somebody could say that work you did, or if God could, would give you a prophet from, from, uh, whatever, from heaven or an angel would come down and say that work had this end, that it was to the glory of God, that would bring the greatest joy to the Christian. That would bring the greatest joy. Not that anybody noticed it. Not that anybody else understood it. Not that it counted one iota towards your relationship with God. 
but that it brought him glory and the Christian would say, amen. My soul is satisfied. So that is a good work when we can say it has that quality about it. And it is done in the humility of grace and this connects with faith in Christ. But let me just give you an example just to illustrate this. How about in Colossians 3.17? He says this, and contrast this with the ways that works are incomplete. But he says in Colossians 3.17, Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Notice, giving thanks doesn't account to you. It's a, an expression of gratitude to God for who he is. It's through Christ. In other words, it's realizing that this work is acceptable only because of Christ. And it has at the end the glory of God the Father. That's a good work. How about Paul? The life I live, remember what he said? Can you finish it? Galatians 2.20. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Why did he go and evangelize churches and plant churches? Why did he give himself to suffer for the good of the church and for the gospel? Why did he let himself, why was he continually in prison? Why did he humble himself before the churches? Because Paul said, look what a spiritual person I am. No, and if he ever had that thought, God says, I'm gonna send you a messenger, a thorn in the flesh, so that you wouldn't exalt yourself, so that everything you do would have within it the ring of holiness, of pure faith in me, of understanding that whatever you do, it comes from Christ. And so Paul said, I labored more than all of them. In another place, he says, yet not I, but what? 1 Corinthians 15, the grace of God within me. The grace of God within me, that's humility. It's Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves is a gift of God, not a result of works, lest anyone should boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he planned beforehand, that we should walk in them. And so when it's a good work, when it's out of true faith in Christ, that makes total sense. We say, I'm, I'm, I've only done what I ought to have done. I've only done what God enabled me to do. And the greatest joy that I have in this work is that God is glorified, that it somehow increases his purposes in this world, that it somehow edifies someone else, that it somehow serves his kingdom. So how is a work complete before God in this way? When it is the product of our union with Christ by the Spirit. When they are the outflow of obedience from a repentant heart that rests and trusts in the righteousness of Christ alone for acceptance with God. Do you realize your best works, your best works are still tainted with sin? If you were to take your best work on your best day and your best moment and present it to God on its own merit, it would be only worthy of condemnation. But presented to God as a sincere expression of faith and love for Christ, he says it's cleansed by Christ. You're righteous in Christ. You're counted, you're justified. You're counted righteous in Christ. You've been sanctified positionally. You stand before me as a saint and a son and a daughter. And even though your work in and of itself is incomplete, it's weak, it's feeble, and it's full of things that I can condemn, he says instead, as a loving father who has reconciled himself to us in Christ, I accept that to my glory. I accept it. I receive it as a sincere expression in my son whom I love and whom it will glorify and I will bless you for it. That's a work that's complete before God when it flows out of life in Christ. We have nothing that we offer to God. We add nothing to God. We in no way increase his glory. We in no way do anything that in and of itself 
is needed by God, who would first give to God that he should give back? Who could counsel God? From him, through him, and to him are all things. To him be the glory. Let me just end this thought with this, with this note. Listen to the way he does in 1 John. And there's a, let me just give you this. In 1 John, he says, this is the message we've heard from him. God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. And he says, if we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But, listen, if we walk in the light and he, as he himself is in the light, now what does it mean to walk in the light? If we walk in the light in truth, consistent with the truth, and we walk in the life consistent with holiness to God, if we walk in the light in a way that demonstrates his own nature, for God is light and it shows our life shared in him through Christ by the Spirit. In other words, if we walk obediently to Christ, if we walk in the truth, letting it shape and conform our lives. What does he say? Listen, and this is the point I want you to notice. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And here, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Do you see the contrast? When it's a wrong kind of work, not complete, we say, I walk in the light and therefore God accepts me. When it's a true expression of a regenerate heart and faith in Christ and gratitude for redemption, then we walk in the light and we say, what I offer to God is accepted because his blood cleanses me from all sin. It assures me. I have the confidence that, in fact, my life has been transformed, that I do have his life in me. Why? Because I can offer him something sincerely for his glory and delight in it. I can keep his commandments, as he'll say later, and his commandments are not burdensome. They're a delight of my heart. As a matter of fact, I only really have any kind of real joy when I'm being obedient to him. When I'm not, I'm miserable. That's the life of a Christian. And so that's when a lie work is acceptable to God. When it's done out of sincere faith in Christ. And that's what they did not have. But there was some glimmer of hope. There was some glimmer of hope. And indeed, it was possible to offer the good works to God. And let me just make a footnote too. That good works... That an active faith, an obedient faith, an observable faith by the things that we do, by a will moved by the Holy Spirit to act to the glory of God, is in fact a requirement of salvation. We were saved unto good works. I won't go through every passage. Let me just mention one. Uh, in Titus chapter 2. He says this, we're looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify himself for a people, a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds or good works. In other words, we are to do good works. We are to be zealous for good works, but it flows out of what? The hope that we have in the gospel. The hope that we have in Christ. And in fact, that's why he saved us, is that we could do good works. That's part of Ephesians 2. So the first call of repentance then is this. Wake up. Pay attention to the condemnation by Christ. Recognize the emptiness of your works as they stand now. Give attention to anything that's good that remains, any spark of life, and strengthen it and offer to Christ the obedience of a sincere heart. Turn to him. Turn to him. That's the first set of commands. Let's note the second just briefly. How does that, what does that look like? How then are we to turn to him? How are we complete, they to complete these works? Well, he says in verse 3, remember, that's a command, it's an imperative, remember what you have received, or that what, you might have a note, could technically be uh, how you received. 
It might be a better translation. But he says, remember what you have received and heard and keep it and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know what hour I come to you. So the first thing there are the three imperatives here in this, this group, second grouping are remember, keep, and repent. You're commanded to remember, to keep what you remember, and to repent. And let's just very briefly discuss this. So what are they to remember? What are we to remember? He says in this case, they are to remember what they have received and what they heard. What did they receive and hear? Essentially, it's this, the gospel. The gospel that first came to this church that established them as a people of God, that established them as a local congregation. And in essence, he's saying, remember how the word was first received in Sardis when the church was established, when she uh, uh, laid a foundation for her testimony of Christ. Remember that. Remember how it was received. Remember how it was received in faith, the apostolic message of Christ's death and of Christ's resurrection for you. Remember those things. He's saying, remember how the church first received the gospel. Remember the sincere embrace of Christ. Remember the change of life that it brought. Remember the spiritual reality that marked it at first and return to that foundation. That's the idea. That's the idea. And this is such a necessary warning Because again, it is so easy and not uncommon to drift away from the beginnings, to drift away from the origins of what true faith was founded on. It can happen individually, and we see it throughout the history of the church. You go over to the churches where the Reformation was the strongest, and what are they now? Dead, destroyed, or apostate. Why? They drifted. They didn't remember the foundation. They didn't remember the the original reception and they got caught up with the drift of the world and of the culture and it became easy and they died. They died. Look at denominations across the landscape of church history that started out alive and now they're dead. Look at the liberal Presbyterian church. Look at much of Methodism. Look at the Episcopal church. Large sections of the Anglican church. Why are these churches empty throughout Europe? and more and more so here because they're dead. They forgot from which they started. And that's the message here. Some people want to stay in those churches and try to revive that denomination, and that's their choice. You have to question, is that the best way? Maybe they should leave. That's a perennial question among leaders. The point is here, it's easy to drift. You need to remember. Remember the foundation. Remember the gospel. Don't become merely an organization or an institution, but become the living people of God. Remember that you are a spiritual organism. You are the people of God if you profess his name. Return and live out what true spiritual life is. And of course, to remember means ultimately to come back to the Word of God. Every revival begins with a preaching of the Word of God, a preaching again of the gospel, an embrace in a refreshed and revived way the truths of redemption in Christ. That's where it comes. That's where it comes in our own lives. That's why Psalm 119, the psalmist said, Revive me, what? According to your word. Revive me according to your word. Make your word alive again when we feel dead, when we're struggling with sin, when we feel the same kind of spiritual lethargy in our own life. We can pray the same thing. Lord, help me to remember. 
Remember what I've been redeemed from. Remember what I started in. Remember, remind me of the beginning and the preciousness of my salvation that I could again walk with you and give to you a life that is worthy of your name. He says, remember. There's a variety of ways we cannot remember. Let me just give you an example. Remember, in, <laughs> to use that word, Matthew 13 he says, some people receive the word. Now, he's talking about individuals. We can apply it to individuals. We can apply it to the church. He says, and there were some in whom the seed was sown among the thorns. And this is the man who hears the word. He hears it. He makes some embrace of it. But the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. In other words, they hear the word and yet the world is just too attractive. The pull of the world internally is just too much. Like Demas, we read about it in Philemon. And he abandons the gospel because they love the approval of the world rather than the approval of God. They love to be thought well of. How much does this apply for us today? By the world rather than by God. And so they go on national TV or they write articles or whatever, this kind of church, and they do everything to be made likable rather than to be truthful. Everything just may be winsome and culturally accepted rather than to stand against the lies and the ideologies that corrupt a people and a nation and even the church. And so that's what's going on here. He says, remember, remember, remember. Just one other Brief note on that. Well, in Hebrews 2, he says, Be careful that you don't drift away. So they're to remember. Next, he says, You are to keep. In remembering the gospel, you are to keep it. And this is essentially a call to obedience. Both of these are present imperatives. Continually keep. Continually remember. Think. Lay it before your mind. Keep what you remember. Keep the truths. Turn to them again. Obey them. Be obedient from the heart to that form of teaching which you originally received. The gospel that you originally received, hold on to them. This is similar to what Jesus said at the beginning of the book, isn't it? In Revelation 1.3, he says this, Blessed is he who reads, those who hear the words of the prophecy, and heeds the things which are written in it, for the time is near. That's where blessedness comes. And it's amazing that there is still that hope, even for this church. This is a consistent call of the gospels, but let me move on. Finally, he says, repent. He says, repent. Now, he uses a different grammatical form here of repent. And really, the sense is this. As you go on, he says, remember, keep remembering. Keep, keep keeping, keep obedient. And then he says, repent. And this term, this command here sort of acts as a summary of the other two. He's calling for a decisive action. And this decisive action embraces all of the others. And he says, repent. Repent. Turn. Don't continue in your, continual, in, your, in your present condition. He's saying completely break with your dead works, your empty religion, and come all the way to faith in Christ. And you know what? That takes a great amount of humility. But what it takes really is only the true sight of Christ. Because then the cost is worth whatever it costs, right? That we may gain Christ. Deny myself, take up my cross and follow Christ. The issue with sin and the issue with unbelief and the issue with not embracing the gospel is not because the world is so beautiful. 
That's really not ultimately the case. It's not because sin is so attractive necessarily. It's this. It's that Christ is so inglorious. Because if you see Christ, and that's what regenerates, what Paul said, right? He has shown in our hearts to show the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And if you've seen that glory, and if you felt your sin, and you've seen the salvation in Christ, then you would give everything to have it. The world, we just sang about it, right? Those are the words of the song. becomes nothing. It becomes meaningless. We understand fully then in those moments what Christ said, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and he forfeits his soul? What would a man give in exchange for his soul? Well, I'll tell you what, if Christ is distant and if you don't see his glory and you don't know your sin, nothing. Why would you care? The world is going to be so much better. But if you have seen God and you have tasted of your sin and you have seen the salvation in Christ, then you say, take it all. I wish there were more that I could give. I wish I could give more. And so he's saying here, repent. Repent of all of this foolishness that you're caught up in. Repent of this sense of resting in the good opinion of others. Repent of your sense of self-importance. Repent of resting on past laurels in the history of the church. And turn yourselves over to the purposes of God in true faith. And it demands the whole person, he's saying, They need to change their mind and perception of their true condition and own it. It needs to produce sincere sorrow, godly sorrow in their heart that moves them to change their actions in the course of their lives to faithful obedience to Christ. It's the mind, the heart, and the will and true repentance. Exchange the easy, non-demanding, culture-compromising religious life of the church they'd settled into and exchange it for a true relationship with Christ. Embrace the true call to discipleship, to self-denial, and the hope that transcends the world and makes losing it worth it. That's what he's calling them to. That's what he's calling them to. Well, we'll pick it up there, but let me just make note of this. He says, and if you don't, I'll come like a thief. And you don't know the hour of your judgment when it comes upon you, but it will come. But he leans out here before us and before the church. He lays out a word of hope, actually, and this is going to be a glorious hope, and we'll we'll wrap it up next week. But we really want to spend some time on what is this hope? What does it mean to walk in white garments? That's what he says, and he's going to commend some of them, and he's going to say in verse 4, you have a few people in Sardis who have remained faithful to Christ, and let me tell you, their faithfulness to Christ and the reward it brings is profoundly glorious and worth it. And so the reality is this. One, that we need to apply this to ourselves individually and say, what is the foundation of your works? What is the foundation of your life? What is it? If it's not true, it will be exposed. What is the foundation? What are you resting on? What, not in what you say with your mouth, but in your inner thoughts, your inner feelings, your inner reasoning. Are you resting truly in the grace that is in Christ Jesus? Are you truly living for him? Not perfectly, but is that, can you say at the base and the deepest part of my life is what I desire to do? Poorly though I may do it. And though I know that rebellion still resides in my heart, I don't delight in that rebellion. I hate it and want to offer myself completely to God and that's welcome to the process of sanctification. Can you say that? Or are you resting in being in church Are you resting in family history? Are you resting in a moral life? Are you resting in intellectual knowledge? 
Are you resting in something else other than Christ? Because if you are, then that indictment is for you that your works are going to be found incomplete in the sight of God. Or do you see the sincerity of faith, again, weak at times, hardly perceptible at other times, but consistent, persevering in there to follow Christ? If so, then you can rejoice at his grace in your life. And we as a church then and as individuals know that we are protected in that reality inasmuch we are as faithful to the word of God and it does its work in us. Preserving us, keeping us, saving us, humbling us, shaping us, convicting us, reproving us, training us in righteousness and so forth. And may we be counted as those few people in Sardis and more and more the true church is going to be like those few people, isn't it? More and more as the church at large drifts We, hopefully, everyone here will be like those few people. And he's going to say, well, here's a few, this group, that hasn't soiled their garments and has remained faithful to Christ. May that be us. Let's pray and we'll sing a closing song. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your warnings. Because as believers, we hear your warnings and and we respond to them. We're, We're humbled and we... We were made again to look to Christ and offer you gratitude for what you've done and offer you true repentance knowing that you receive every truly repentant sinner. No one is beyond your mercy. Even those at Sardis who compromised and were dead could know your life if they respond. But even that, Lord, we know that of ourselves we have no natural ability. It is by your grace that even that is a gift. Even that is something we plead for you too. And we say, Lord, grant us repentance. Grant us repentance as we pursue repentance. Give us the thing that we're pursuing and the thing we desire. And even the desires from you. So we would say, complete your work. Preserve your work and bring glory to your name. And Father, help us as a church to be faithful to your word. Help us to be faithful to one another and to walk in the truth. And... For those, again, Lord, who don't know you, who may hear these these words and yet be outside of your grace, would you convict them even today and cause them in in their private moments, as it were, before you to confess their sin and trust in Christ and to give their life to you. And we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.